0: Hi, everybody. We're here from the American Association of Suicidology Conference, and we're out in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, We're really happy to be joined by Dr. Brian Amadani. He's with the Henry Ford Healthcare System, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his work here towards the Zero Suicide Initiative. So welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And again, thanks for joining us. I know this conference is so busy, so thanks for taking some time out of your day. Let's just start by you telling us a little bit about you and your work with the Henry Ford Health System.
1: Yeah, great. Pleasure to be here, of course, like I said. So I'm Brian Amadani. I'm director of psychiatry research at Henry Ford Health System, research scientist, and I've been working with our behavioral health system to evaluate some of the zero suicide or what we called perfect depression care initiative after my arrival in 2010. So we've published several articles on our program, some of the uh, results on suicide prevention from from our behavioral health program.
0: Great. So let's start by just talking a little bit about what this perfect depression care system is and sort of how that evolved into what we now call the Zero Suicide Initiative.
1: So I'd, I'd first like to acknowledge all the team. I was not there at the beginning, but I do want to acknowledge, you know, Dr. Ed Coffey, Dr. Kathy Frank. Ed Coffey was our chair of psychiatry for 19 years. Kathy Frank is now our chair, but was also a lead psychiatrist in the department and was responsible for Recommending and suggesting some of these interventions as well along the way, but zero suicide um, really actually stems out of the program that was developed at Henry Ford, and that program began in in the thinking about this idea began in the two th- in two thousand when after the Institute of Med- Medicine report came out, that report called Crossing the Quality Chasm, stimulated health systems to think about how their providing care for their patients across all disease conditions. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation came out with a grant opportunity. And Henry Ford was challenged to submit an application specifically related to depression. And the program was called Perfect Depression Care. The application made it to the finalist round. There was actually not funding, but the program stimulated the department to think about a way to Revolutionized the way that care was provided for patients with all behavioral health conditions in behavioral health services at Henry Ford. The program consisted of comprehensive care, so you identifying people at risk, keeping them engaged in care, uh, providing suicide-specific treatment, which means that we uh, had to train all of our providers, offering open access clinic hours. Uh, and just really staying in, in contact with people. Part of that program also included, and part of the program still includes, lethal means counseling. So this, this is a big deal. It's, it's a political hot-button issue. The way I like to think about this issue is that means counseling is more like uh, taking the keys away when somebody is, is drinking alcohol at the bar. It's a safety issue. It's not a political rights issue. We right to bear arms issue. You know, I'm a hunter, so I am fine with having guns. I think it's it's a, an okay thing to have. But when somebody's at risk for suicide, they're at a danger for themselves. And so at that point, it makes sense for us to talk about, let's figure out a way to remove access to lethal means. And often... If you ask some of our providers, what they've told us over the years is that people start thinking about a certain way that they want to die if they're thinking about suicide, unfortunately. What happens, though, is that if that specific means is removed, then they often don't revert to a different way. So, you know, this is what our providers will tell us. I think that's very powerful. That sort of counseling has been embedded into the program since the beginning. It involves engaging specifically with family members and, and friends of the person who's in care. It's very important to engage with families because they're the ones that are there when the person is not in the session, with friends, with people that are support systems. The way I like to think about this program is that it's, it's a program about caring about people, about thinking about a different way of providing care, and you know we have the opportunity to do uh, to do this now because it's gotten a lot of national attention. So it's now starting to spread. There's a lot of evidence behind some of these interventions. The safety planning intervention now incorporates means counseling or thinking about uh, protecting someone, act to lethal means. That also includes protecting people from having opioids sitting in their cabinets and all all sorts of uh, different ways. And that's, you know, these are different things that are demonstrating effectiveness to reduce suicidal behavior. There are actually ways to do that now. And, and, And so, you know, the more and more we know, the more and more we can improve the way that we
0: prevent suicide. And that's what our goal is. Excellent. And so, you know, as you mentioned, this is sort of a comprehensive package, different levels, many interventions. Let's start, though, with that identification piece, because I understand some of your research has been about where we can identify folks within the health system and how to actually screen them to identify them.
1: Yeah. So interestingly, along, you know, this is actually really important. We've spent so much time over the years focusing on How do we prevent suicide among people with known risk factors? And when I say known risk factors, that's people with a mental health diagnosis, substance use diagnosis, or with a prior suicide attempt. It turns out that even though those people are at the greatest risk of suicide, they don't comprise the greatest number of people who died by suicide. In fact, there's only about 30 to 35% of people who died by suicide who actually make it to behavioral health services before they die. So this is really important because as our suicide rate has been rising by 25 to 30%, which is just astounding to me. One of the things that that I'm worried about is that if we put too much energy into only focusing on behavioral health interventions, and and I think we should focus on behavioral health interventions, those are the people that are most at risk. But if we only focus on behavioral health specific interventions, and that's only where we focus our attention, we will necessarily miss 70% or 65% of people who are at risk for suicide. What we've learned is that over 85% or about 85% of people make a, a, some sort of primary care or general medical visit in the year before they die by suicide. What that means is that if we really want to affect suicide or identify people who are at risk for suicide, we probably better go outside of just behavioral health. And um, so the risk is much lower in that population. The risk may be 5 per 100,000, where it may be 60 to 80 in outpatient behavioral health and even over 200 per 100,000 after, after an inpatient hospital stay. But if you only focus on the highest risk people, which need that,
0: they need attention, you'll necessarily miss most people. Yeah, that's such an important point to drive home. We've been so constricted, I think, in the world of suicide prevention. It's so refreshing to hear that this zero suicide or perfect depression care approach really steps outside behavioral health. And it sounds like primary care is like a key point of entry.
1: Well, actually, it's one of the things we've realized probably too late into the game. I mean, we we were rolling this program only in, in behavioral health, probably until I think probably more upwards, almost until 2010. When I think we took a look at some of the data, uh, there's actually a paper we published came out a couple years ago showing that even though we had a massive 75% reduction in our suicide rates in our behavioral health patient population, we actually did not have a change in our overall health system suicide rate. What that tells me is that we were able to – that program was able to basically offset the increase in the suicide rate in the state of Michigan, Mm -hmm. but it did not reduce the suicide rate. So if we want to have a necessary and meaningful impact in reducing or eliminating suicide, we need to go beyond behavioral health. And while I think behavioral health intervention is so important and so necessary – One of the things that I want to focus on next is figuring out ways that we can do a better job of reducing suicide for everyone else who never gets to behavioral health or find a way of getting them there so that that we can provide better care for people. And, And I think that's going to be the way that we can really make a meaningful reduction in suicide.
0: So we've talked a little bit about identifying and where you, where you find folks, which is, sounds like behavioral health, primary care, but then, you know, what do you do? And we've already touched on this lethal means counseling, and I think I really want to zoom in on that, even though clearly there's many intervention approaches. Could you talk a little bit more about lethal means counseling?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said before, you know, it's really – this is not a, a right-to-bear-arms issue, and I, I, don't, I don't think it is. I think that we're not saying that people can't have guns forever. We're not saying that they can't ever get treatment for chronic pain. What we're saying is right now during a time of, time of crisis or a time of at, being at risk, that now is probably not the best time having those sorts of means around. This idea really focuses on saying, okay, what is it that if someone has a plan or a mean means to carry out the plan, it's about saying, hey, let's work together to, to take that away so that in that moment of spontaneity when that person is most vulnerable, that that thing is not right there. You know, because then if that can get delayed for just a few minutes sometimes, there's opportunity for the, the course to change path. And so what I'm talking about here is is a lot to do with firearms, but it also has to do with all these things with opioid. So we have – I also do opioid research. And, um, you know, one of the things that we worry about is that people – all their leftover pills in their cabinets and who are the people that are most likely to get those pills it's all of their friends and relatives the data on access to opioids shows that prescription opioids and when you ask people where did you get their opioids resounding data say that they got it from a friend or relative so it's that empty that's that bottle that's left over from your grandma that's sitting in your cabinet that's where people get it most of the time they don't go to the doctor. They actually just get it right from the cabinet. Mm -hmm. So if we can eliminate access to that, that's another place where we can, I think,
0: have a meaningful impact on reducing risk of suicide. And it sounds like some of that research is still in its infancy. So the opioid epidemic being a really hot topic nowadays, but how to prevent it and What are your thoughts on that and how we can study this? Obviously, we don't know that much yet, but what are some research directions to get to the bottom of this issue?
1: So there has been actually a plateauing of prescribing of opioids, and I think a lot of that has to do with the CDC opioid prescribing guidelines that came out last year. We still need to learn more about how that's impacting prescribing. There's also these new formulations that are potentially having an impact. We need to learn more about that what we do know is that there's a very clear link between opioid prescriptions and opioid overdose deaths a portion of those deaths are suicides we don't know the specific link between opioid prescriptions and suicide deaths that research is is underway and i think you know we'll have more and more evidence uh, over the the next few years it's very clear that Opioids are responsible for opioid overdose deaths, and, and, uh, and there's a clear established link across the world
0: for that relationship. Very, very interesting. Well, thank you for your time today. I want to give you an opportunity to just add other thoughts. Closing remarks.
1: One of the, the most powerful things about being at this conference is, is, is just being around people who are so focused in dedicating their lives to preventing suicide. And I feel so honored to be here, but I also um, just want to keep moving forward. I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I think and I truly believe that we can make an impact on reducing suicide in this country, and I think that it's going to happen. Um, And I just think we just
0: need to keep working hard um, and actually keep working on caring about people. Well said. Well, thank you, Dr. Amadani. We're going to post some links to some of your work and some of the uh, great research coming out of the Henry Ford Care System. As well, uh, we invite our listeners to comment, chime in. What are your thoughts on the Zero Suicide Movement and lethal means counseling? We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, please join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention.